And to me, it didn't matter if you're blood or crip. These areas are traumatic. You know, they're traumatic. And how do you get past the trauma that you've experienced? So for me, I get through it by talking to people. Hello there. I'm Erica, and you are listening to my podcast. It's called Wait, You What? And it's a podcast where we do a double take on people's surprising stories of struggle, lived experience, and self-discovery. You're going to hear from all different types of people. Sometimes it might be a guest who shares their story with you about something really hard they've had to go through or something really exciting. Sometimes people teach you what they've had to learn and give you advice. But either way, it's about new perspectives and looking at the world in a more empowered and empathetic way. And hey, I just wanted to say thank you so much for the reviews you've left me so far. They really helped me out, so I appreciate it. And if you like an episode, make sure you leave a review and send it to someone who you think might like it. Today on Wait You What, you're hearing from someone who for 27 years was part of one of the world's most well-known gangs, until one day he decided to heal instead of to hurt. So do you have any questions or anything before we start recording? Is there anything you don't want to talk about? No, I'm, I'm open. I'm an open book. Um, you know, if I say things about my past, my history, just don't call my mother and tell her. <laughs> I don't have a direct line to your mom at the moment, so. That's good. <laughs> All right. Well, my name is Skip Townsend, and I'm from Los Angeles, California, from South Central, the um, west side of L.A., and I was labeled, I will say it like this, I was labeled for over 27 years as a blood gang member. Um, however, I'm Yvonne's son. I'm a middle child. If somehow you haven't heard of them, the Bloods are an American gang founded in L.A., California. They represent themselves with the colour red. And if you've heard of the Bloods, you've probably heard of the Crips who represent the colour blue. They're also LA-based. The two gangs are known for their bitter rivalry, historically. Both gangs emerged around 1960. So by the time Skip was a kid, they were active around where he was living. My first memory of seeing gangs as a kid goes back to 1971-72. We used to go see all the Bruce Lee movies downtown LA at the State Theatre. So this theater was where all the young black kids would come. And um, at some point, the Crips formed and they started coming, taking people's lunch money, bus fare, bus passes. They were still in leather jackets, matching chains, um, hats. They had these AC Ducey hats. So people who weren't Crips who had those hats, they would lose their hats. So they just became like the bullies of the area. And uh, at some point we were told we couldn't go to the movies. I'm like eight or nine years old. They're telling us we can't go to the movies anymore. And that's the first time I I put my finger up after Crips, you know. I mean, nine years old, you kind of just want to see a Bruce Lee movie, right? That's it. I just want to go home and kick my brother and my friends and pretend that I'm Bruce Lee. I didn't even want to be black. I wanted to be the average Chinese boy, you know, and they, they interrupted that, man. I was living my little Chinese life, you know. Later on, I say about two or three years later, 73, 74, my grandmother moved into um, Inglewood, California, which had a lot of movie theaters out there as well. Inglewood is a city in southwestern L.A. And there was this one particular movie theater that showed all the black exploitation movies. It was the Fifth Ave, and some Fifth Ave in Manchester. But by now, the Crips had expanded to where there's a guy named Tookie Williams who's probably about as big as a refrigerator, you know, have arms the size of 
uh, two or three football players and him and a guy, Barefoot Pookie, Mike Concepcion, they were real big people and fighters and they would go to the Fifth Ave to fight the Bloods, the Chain Gang, the Ingwood family. So once again, 1975, I'm told, I can't go to the movie. Now I want to be black. Now I want to have a gold chain. I want a Cadillac. I want a Perma. Because I'm watching Superfly, The Mac. I'm watching all the cool black exploitation movies. So I, I want to be black now. And I can't even be black. I can't be Chinese or black because the Crips just keep interfering with everything. How old are you at this point? Um, in 77, I turned 13. So I'm probably 11 or 12 at this point. And 1977, that's when I, I went to go to the Fox Hills Mall. And um, this guy, Kevin Lee, had told me and my friend to give him our money. He said, just give me your money. And I said, for what? And he said, because the Crips are going to take it from you. And I've, had, I've had enough, man. I can't go to the movie theater. I can't go to school. can't go to the park. Now you're telling me I can't go to the mall. And that was at that time that I decided, man, I'm not going to be a victim. When I see the Crips, I'm going to fight them. I'm going to beat them up. I'm going to do this. So um, Kevin had me and uh, a couple of my friends fight. Uh, he said, fight. I want to I see. Come on, show me what you're going to do. And then we started fighting. He started laughing. He said, he said, the only thing I can tell you good, Skip, is that you don't know how to fight, but you could beat up him, your other friend. So the two of you go to the go to the mall. Y'all going to get beat up. You the, you the better fighter, but you can't fight at all. And he can't fight no better. And it's like, wow. So that was when I decided, man, I'm going to I'm going to fight back regardless whether I win or lose. I'm, I'm going to give it my all to not be a victim. I'm not giving up my money. If they ask me how much money I have, I'm going to tell them I got a million dollars in my pocket. Take it. If they ask me what size my shoes are. They're your size. I'm wearing your size shoes. Take them off me. And that's when my whole attitude changed. And it went all bad after that. This is where Skip sees that it kind of all started. From then on, he was pretty much in the bloods. Yeah, that I believe that was the moment. I think the process had started for the hatred. Um, the process had started for the, um, you know, all the interactions I had with Crips was always bad. Um, they were the bullies. They were the ones who were the bullies. So um, the bloods turned into bullies as well, but it was in the beginning just to say, no, we're not gonna give in to the Crips. We're not gonna give in to being victims of the Crips or being a part of something that we just don't believe in. So it started out good, but at some point, um, the Bloods became the aggressor and started aggressing on Crips. And, and now the killing of young black men became at the hands of young black men. Being in the Bloods wasn't really like you might imagine how they portray it in movies or whatever. When Skip was a teenager, being in the Bloods was more of a safety in numbers with his friends kind of thing. Being a part of, I want to say, a gang is not what people would think. So it's not as if I go to a certain location and say, hey, you guys, I want to join. It's, it's exactly what I told you. I just wanted to go to the mall with my friends. Um, it wasn't as if it was a gang. It was more like close friends and family members. Um, and so we were doing the average everyday thing. You know, we were going to the swimming pools. We were messing with girls. We were going to the mall. Um, we were doing the average childhood things. It's just that when approached by a large crowd, we weren't going to run. We weren't going to say, okay, here's my money. We were going to fight back. 
So we, you know, at my age at 12, 13 years old, 14 years old, I was never the aggressor. Um, I had to find ways to um, navigate, you know, whether it's take a different street. If we know on Crenshaw, we're going to run into all the Crips. Well, let's take Arlington. We had to learn to navigate to different places where there were people like us. And so it became a, a blood family, you know, it just... We were a family all the way up to about 1993. This is when Skip says that things started going bad within the Bloods. Bloods started fighting other Bloods. The individuals who had claimed Bloods from different areas, no matter what city they came from, um, started animosity with each other. And, you know, we'd always go somewhere and fight, you know, whoever was drunk or somebody stole somebody's car, somebody slapped somebody's sister. So there'd always be fights and we'd get together and everybody fight and it's over with. But in 1993, um, Bloods began killing each other. Bloods started going to war against other Bloods and then we became separated and it's, it slowed down, but it's never stopped. And what was that like at the time? How did you feel inside your head, inside your heart? In 1993, my, my heart dropped when I was at a party, uh, a function, uh, I'll call it a gathering, a barbecue. And there were some guys who had on all red who walked up in the crowd and started shooting. So I was, I was confused. I was like, what is this? And um, everybody started running and I'm like, what is going on? And I saw people that I cared about falling. There was a young man who had recently been shot like maybe seven, eight months ago and he just started back walking. He had only, you know, been walking again for two or three months. And I saw him fall and I was thinking to myself, I sure hope he didn't get killed. Uh, and he didn't. But people were explaining to me that this is a faction of Pasadena that broke off from the other faction of Pasadena. They're all blood, but they had issues with each other. And that was them shooting at us. And I'm like, man, that's crazy. And then in Inglewood, the same thing happened where guys I know in this part of Inglewood, guys I know in this part, and I'm friends with both sides, they started shooting at each other and just went all bad. Yeah, I can't imagine what that's like when you're having what you think is like a peaceful gathering and then and then that just happens. It, how does that affect your feeling of safety and community? Uh, it has a major effect it, it, to the point where right now, and I just spoke about this to another young man, this young man did 31 years in prison and he says when, you know, he has anxiety when he goes to functions, he's like, man, I, I don't trust anybody. So he says, Skip, I'm only there, you know, maybe three to five minutes. And I told him I'm, I'm similar. I don't do three to five minutes. I'll do about 10 or 15, but I don't stay for three or four hours at a barbecue anymore. And he said he wants to get to that point, but he says he walks into the crowd about three minutes, talks to everybody, let them know he's home from prison. He said he leaves. So it, it's, it's very difficult. It's, it's traumatic. It's trauma. And, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm grateful that he felt emotionally safe to share that with me because that's just something that I can't share. Imagine me being around drive-by shooters, guys who, you know, smoke everything that doesn't need to be smoked, drink everything, alcoholics. Um, I can't share with them how I feel. Because if I do, they're going to have me smoking and drinking. Or if there's a violent offender, they're going to ask me, well, come on and hurt somebody with us and it'll make you feel better. So it's, it's a lot of trauma in growing up in that area. And to me, it didn't matter if you're blood or crip. 
these areas are dramatic. You know, they're traumatic. And how do you get past the trauma that you've experienced? So for me, I get through it by talking to people. So as Skip got older, he started getting involved in criminal activity in the Bloods. And some of this criminal activity involved selling drugs. Selling drugs is something that I'm really not proud of now. However, back in the days, it was it was really the thing to do in South LA because I could have easily went to work and you got to understand that 82, 83 um, minimum wage in Los Angeles was like maybe five dollars. Uh, 425, 475. So I could work 10 hours and maybe make $40, you know, maybe. 10 hours of being on the street, um, low budget, not not being a big time dope dealer, I could make about 4,000. Average guy who couldn't count could make at least 400. So we're, we're talking about, um, you know, the percentage was better for a drug dealer. There were guys who were making a million dollars a day. And of course, I want to be like them. I want to say it was scary because at that point, I would put a target on my back. So LAPD would target me. LA County Sheriff would target me. But at the same time, local community members would target me as well for having the money, for being able to make so much money. So everybody couldn't sell drugs. So some people would wait to the end of the night when everybody else had sold drugs and come rob them. So it would be mandatory to have a gun or to have protection, to have a team. That's when gangbanging was crucial because if you did not belong to a certain neighborhood or gang and you were selling drugs out there by yourself, um, people would become victims of that. And there were a lot of people who died and became victims, not just because they weren't part of a gang, but some people weren't the most... um, loved person in the gang so they become victims so that was back in the days when they say even you know in la they say only the strong survive but back then even the strong got killed got robbed you know there were many years there where skip would go in and out of jail pretty regularly over a couple of different sentences skip spent quite a long time in jail if i go back to when i first started going to jail i started going to jail 1977 i recently added it up and it all comes to about eight years so it's not Altogether eight years, it was like installment plans where I gave eight months here, gave a year here, did two and a half, that type of stuff. I spent all of 1998 in jail, so I put that year on it. I thought I was done with it, but then in 2004, I gave another year in jail. And at one stage, um, you were facing two life sentences? 1998. Tell me what happened and what that was for. Well, it was I had long hair back in the 90s. It's hard to tell now, but um, they said that the person who did the shooting in this situation um, wore glasses and had long hair. So everyone just started calling out my name, said, oh, that sounds like Skip. That sounds like Skip. So um, this was in 1995. So in 1998, um, I eventually went to jail for this. And Skip had nothing to do with it. There was a chance he was going to be found guilty for a crime that he didn't commit. But the case went to trial And when it did, someone who was there, who got shot and survived the incident, got up and spoke. He got on the witness stand and he said that, hey, I'm a drug dealer. I sell drugs. He says somebody was trying to rob me. He says, I know Skip. It wasn't Skip. He said, I looked the guy dead in his eyes who tried to shoot me and it wasn't Skip. So everybody like, okay. And I got a 10 to 2 hung jury. 
After the man stood there and said, Skip didn't do it. There were two people who still said, oh, I don't believe it. I think he did it anyway. Can you imagine that? That's what society, they want to find someone guilty. When Skip found himself back in jail in 1998, something happened that made him decide that something needed to change. My father died while I was in custody. And um, I was like, I can't do this. I can't keep going back to jail. And that was that was the beginning to where um, I didn't even have a gun anymore or nothing. I wasn't even trying to protect myself. If somebody says something to me, I have to try to diffuse it with words, with relationships, with, you know, whatever I could use other than pure violence. Pretty soon after Skip decided to make this change, he started noticing a huge difference in the way people treated him. I started getting embraced by other I want to call them cultures, even though it's the same culture, but they're subcultures. So the Crips, um, they have Crips who are uh, calling themselves gangsters. They have Crips that call themselves hood. Um, So when I started um, getting embraced by these different cultures and guys I might have grew up with or went to jail with or whatever, it, 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 it started me, in my opinion, as being the person I am today. And this is exactly what defines Skip today, what he's known for in the community, what is respected and loved for by Bloods and Crips alike, because of what he does for the community. See, a few years after Skip made that choice, with inspiration from his mentor, Bo Taylor, who was a local peacemaker himself, Skip decided to start an organisation called Second Call. So Second Call actually started um, July 3rd, 2006. So I was sitting there talking to my friend Kenny Smith and he was making a sandwich. He was he was ignoring me. And I was like, man, this is the best thing. We got to start something. And yeah, I could tell his answer was, yeah, we got to start something. So yeah, man, we got to help the community. You know, do so, Yeah, we got to help the community. So he would just repeat the last three words I was saying, right? So um, I was like, man, I'm serious, man. He said, yeah, man, I'm serious too. Come on in. And, <laughs> and we started second call at that moment. That was the moment. Um, We started Second Call at the same table. He's making the sandwich that... Second Call is Skip's community-based organisation, which he designed to help save lives. The point of Second Call is to reduce violence in the community through gang intervention and teaching personal development to people seen as high-risk individuals, proven offenders, ex-felons and parolees. Second Call runs classes like anger management, parenting and domestic violence classes. They offer counselling and job readiness. Most of all, they offer a safe space for people to just be together. I think the most important role of Second Call is saving lives. It's real easy to get the data from the FBI, from the sheriff, from LAPD, how many homicides, how many shooting with hits, how many shooting without hits. Um, It's easy to get those numbers and add them up. But how many lives were saved because we passed out water and diluted the community. How many lives were saved because we have ex-felons and parolees who were violent offenders coming to our classes who are now electricians, iron workers, plumbers. Um, How many lives were saved when we um, interfered in domestic violence situations where the wife was at her end and was going to kill her husband or vice versa. Uh, You know, the husband came and said, man, I want to kill everybody in the house. And we're able to let them talk it out. So those are the things that we cannot quantify. We can't, you know, how do we how do we capture that data? But what we do is save lives. And, you know, to this point, we don't know how many lives we save. But however many lives we save, I want to say times 10, because not only did I save their life, but their mother and father, their children, their wife, 
you know, those, their lives were affected by what we did because had they died or had they killed somebody, it would have affected their immediate family. So, What work did you have to personally do inside yourself to resolve any conflicts you may have with yourself? I think that is probably the best question you ask me, and it's the most important. The self-talk that I have to myself sometimes will get me in trouble. You know, when somebody says something and I, I turn around and I walk away, but I'm thinking to myself, man, they must think, I'm, what did they just say? And I sit here and talk to myself and relive that conversation. I might turn around and just my perception of what somebody else said might let, lead me to be aggressive or lead me to, you know, um, you know, get out of pocket. So I think that the first person I had to work on was me. And I had to say to myself, what am I going to do when they call me out my name? What am I going to do when I'm in this area, this neighborhood, and they start saying bad things, bad words? What am I going to do? And those things didn't happen. What started happening is I moved forward as I kept growing and growing. The people behind me, the people that I love and care for, did not want to grow with me. So they were the ones throwing rocks. They were the ones throwing the knives in my back. What's your biggest tip for people who want to start healing? For people who can understand the analogy of Pruno. So Pruno is a drink made in jail. Get all the bread, all the sugars, the oranges, orange juice, put it in the bag. And now what happens, the bag starts expanding, starts growing. As it gets hot, it's breaking down all the sugars. That's how we're going to get drunk, right? At some point, I got to burp the bag. I got to open it up and let it come out. Because if I don't, the bag is going to keep expanding until it busts. That's the same thing with hurt, that energy. It's going to keep expanding until it busts, until it explodes. And when it explodes, it's going to go bad for everybody around. So I think that the um, hurt people hurt people. I think that the key to it all is to be able to burp the baby. Matter of fact, the baby will do the same thing, right? The baby's going to throw up on everybody. You put the nice little clothes on the baby and, oh, she's so cute. He's so cute. And the baby get out to take a picture and throw up on everybody. It's because the baby didn't burp, right? <laughs> it's the same thing. I, I have to burp the baby. Uh, you know, I have to do the things where I get this out, this air, this energy, this gas. It has to come out of me because I'm not healthy. It's not, I'm not going to be healthy. Say hypothetically, you've got someone who has a rivalry against another person and they're face to face and they feel heated towards each other. How would you step in and give advice in this situation? What would you say to them? I wouldn't give advice. The one thing I would do is I would separate them. I would want to talk to the person who is the cooler minded person. I would want to walk with them and say, man, let me get you a slice of pizza, some chicken. Let's go get a soda at the store. Let me, let me talk to you. Cause when we go back, you know, he's going to be pushing, you know, he's going to say this, you know, he's going to, you know, and at the same time I'm talking to that person, I would have someone who has a relationship with the other person talking to them. So I would say things like, you know, just be prepared that the worst Things are going to come out of his or her mouth. They're going to say the worst, man. And and your focus, you know, what are you going to focus on? Are you going to focus on the words? Or are you going to focus on what you're here for? If you're at work, if you're at school, whatever it is, you know, how do you continue your day with that person being aggressive? And let me try. I'm going to ask this person, let me try. Let me talk to him when I get back so I can stop that. And most of the time, it's about attention. Most of the time, it's, you know, I want this person's attention. 
whether they've done something to hurt me, I want them to know. So I think in, in, in every situation, one, at least one person wants to be heard. When you look back at your time um, with Second Call, what do you remember to be your most favorite moment or a moment that just touched you while doing this work? Um, it was a Thursday night and they're, like I said, they're life skill classes and I go and participate myself because I'm a participant. And when I walked into the room, it was about 45 to 50 people surrounding the table. And I looked around for a chair and there weren't any. So I knew I had to go upstairs to get a chair. And it just, my heart just fluttered and I could feel it inside that I'm no longer needed. I created a situation where I don't want to get hit by a bus, but if I get hit by a bus, it's okay. You know, second call is going to continue at this point. We're going to continue to have, because I'm not the facility, I'm not the main focus. There are several classes we have at one point before pre-COVID, we have 14 classes with over 400 participants a week. And, and we're growing again. You know, now I have um, people have asked to defund the police and we say, OK, not, not defund the police, but how could we reimagine public safety? And right now, Second Call has an ambassador program at Lamert Park in South L.A., which is the hub for the black community. So we're not saying keep the police away, but can you let us handle it first? Can you give us a chance? Can we bring the peace? And if we can't bring the peace and it gets out of hand, then call the police. But can we have the first shot? You know, not second call. Can we be the first call and let the police be the second call? You know, but call us first. So I think that's that's one of those moments like, man, we made it, you know, even if we don't have the money because a lot of it is volunteer. But just the fact that we we have gotten to a position where, you know, we can help really save more and more lives. Do you think that uh, rival gangs can coexist peacefully? Yeah, so I think rival gangs can coexist because, as I stated earlier, they're more like families. So what it is is a clash of the families. And if we can get the families to sit at the table, start eating together, and we've done it. I've done it. Tomorrow I'm going to be at a funeral for a guy named Monster Cody, and there's going to be different community members there. So it happens all the time. It's just not publicized. What do you wish that society or the broader public knew about gangs that they don't? I think the one thing I would like for society to know is that there are individuals who simply want to exist in the areas. So every murder is not a gang member and every gang member is not a murderer. There was a young guy come from my neighboring community, community we don't get along with. He went in the store and, and stole a soda and a bag of chips. And what he did was when he came back the next day, the owner of the store tried to fight him off and tried to make him stay so he can call the police. But a young kid pushed him and ducked up under. And when he got caught, they wanted to give him 12 years for a gang enhancement, and which would have been a petty crime. Come on, it's a bag of chips and a soda. But they wanted to give him, uh, instead of a, a petty theft, they wanted to give him a burglary because he actually fought off the store owner. So, you know, they were saying that they, these are the things that the gangs do to establish, um, you know, their respect and establish this. And that's just not the case. That's a child. He need a whooping, but he doesn't need 12 years. You know, he needs community service. He needs to clean that store up. He needs to, to power wash the driveway. You know, he needs to, you know, take graffiti off the wall. That's what he needs. But society says, man, throw him away. 
And that's what I need people in society to know that we're not um, we're not trash. Don't throw us away. Don't don't have stiff sentences to keep us in prison. So individuals who are sentenced to 25 years to life for murder. Well, that's what they should get because they committed a murder. They take someone's life. But the way the old laws had it is to where they would get 25 life, 25 years of life for murder. But then they would get an additional 25 years for being a gang member. You know, and then they would get an additional 10 to 12 years for using a gun. So they look for ways to make sure that people who look like me do not come out of prison. And that's what society needs to realize is that does not keep our streets safe. When you put a person in prison at 20, 22 years old, trust me, by the time they're 35, they're not the same. There are things that are happening while they're in prison for that first 10 to 12 years that makes them snap and say, okay. I got to start learning. I got to learn something new. So by the time they get to year 17 to year 20, they're pretty much rehabilitated. They're not going to come home and hurt anything. So I think 25 years is, is, is perfect. But of course, society says not throw them away. They're not worth. So I understand in some cases it's not cookie cutter, but you know, if they're not sex crimes, some people who commit sex crimes are animals. They're, they're predatory. But if this person is not predatory, I believe, you know, um, that there should be a way that society just doesn't want to lock up all the black and brown people, everybody who's uh, Mexican or African-American go to prison for life. It, it doesn't make sense to me. Skip says he thinks the key lies in helping change young people's situations. As individuals like myself work on the young people, work on changing their attitude, the mentality, um, work on their behavior. It doesn't make sense when we put them back in the same environment that doesn't support the change. So it's sort of like taking a bath and putting on the same dirty clothes. We have to work with the parents. We have to work with all the other environmental issues um, that they're challenged with every day. But I think what's important for you, Erica, and you being in Sydney, Australia, is that you can help us change perception. You can help change the perception that people have on our children. They're not gang members. They're just simply not. There's no organizational structure. There is no leader. There is no leadership. These are children who are acting out in a manner which may hurt themselves or hurt others. But regardless of how much they hurt others, they're still children. They're not gang members, no matter how they identify themselves. Wait, You What is written, recorded, produced by me, Erica Mallett. You can find me on Instagram. Hit me up. Send me a DM. Give me some thoughts. What did you think of the episode? Is there anything you think I should talk about? At Erica, E-R-I-C-A underscore Mallet. M-A-L-L-E-T-T. Double L, double T. Thank you again for listening. I'll see you next time on Wait You What. Bye.